Okay, I'm with uh, Danielle Dershleg. Anna Tefka is the short film. It's four minutes long, played at the Female Filmmakers Film Festival. Got it, Danielle, I gotta say right off the bat, I probably watch about maybe nine, 10,000 short films a year. Um, we accept maybe a thousand or a thousand. So I watch mm -hmm. a lot of short films. Yeah. And I have to say, I'm blown away, completely blown away by your film. Cause I'm gonna oh, get wow, thank you. Of, of, of a backdrop. It's four minutes long. It's a musical with children doing kind of a version of Fiddler on the Roof, but it's like it, it's nice social commentary. It's it's poignant. It's funny. It's it's really it's going to stand a test of time. I'm giving you. I don't. If you listen to other podcasts, I don't say this. I, I everybody. I love everybody's films, but I'm not blown away often. I watch your film and I'm like, oh my god, how did she pull this off? Like, oh, thank you. Not only did you did it, did an original musical that most people kind of know about, but you use kids doing it. So the first question is, where did you find these amazing children to be in your film? Oh, thank you so much. That's an incredible introduction. And it means a ton to me. You know, this film is, it, it premiered at your festival. So to have the first time out be so positive is an incredible gift. Thank you. Um, these kids are miraculous, aren't they? They did an incredible job and they are non-professionals. It was really important to me because, you know, the scene that this whole film takes place in it, the setting is a Jewish day school classroom. Yep. And I really wanted a believable performance of regular children performing a song in front of their parents. You know, we've all been in a room like that, whether we were performing or we were watching children perform. And that's not a slick performance. It isn't Broadway. It isn't jazz hands. So in order <laughs> to least, get... Yeah. Right, exactly. There's always a big range of talent and sort of knowing the steps and all that stuff, which is partly what makes it, let's be honest, adorable, right? Is that range of sort of commitment. Only so if you're I'm, emotionally attached to one of the children. If it's if you're not, then it's a little bit of a chaotic mess. But yeah. It can be. So <laughs> I, you know, for that reason, um, I really did not want, you know, here, I, I'm based in Brooklyn, New York. We have an incredible community of professional child actors, but I didn't want to go that route because I didn't want slickness. I wanted a really believable classroom type performance. Um, so, you know, my process for finding these children was extensive and complex. If you can imagine, this was still at the heart of COVID. So I'm asking parents not only to give me their non-professional kids, you know, for a week of their time, which is a big ask. I mean, I'm yeah. not a summer camp director, right? They don't know me. Um, but also I'm asking them to sing with their mouths open in a room with poor ventilation. I mean, it was a very tough request for COVID reasons and also just for the regular reasons. So I <laughs> emailed every Jew I know. That's a lot of Jews. And I said, basically, you know, please spread the word. So it was all over Facebook. It was all over parents' listings for Jewish schools. I called every synagogue here in Brooklyn. You don't even want to know how many that is. And said, you know, who do you have in your community in this age range who loves to sing and dance? Then it became a series of Zoom interviews. And my number one, you know, my real central questions for each kid was, do you love to sing? Do you love to dance? Do you like making new friends? If the answer was yes to all those three and they had some form of Jewish identity, whatever that means to them, I'm not picky, they were in. So that's how I found these kids. And believe it or not, it took months. I was still casting children the week before production, which is not where you want to be. But this was a complex casting process. So we're so lucky we ended up with this fantastic crew. Okay, so then the next question is that this, is, this wasn't an easy film to make. So what was right. your underlying motivation to make it? Oh, you know, so I, all of my work, I'm a visual artist and a filmmaker, so I make films regularly, but I also make sculpture and performance work, costume, all kinds of stuff. 
Um, all my work is about contemporary Jewish identity. That's what I'm obsessed with and fascinated by. And with film work, what really drives me is when, frankly, something, an idea takes hold that makes me laugh and I can't let it go. And with this one, um, the inspiration for this film came from going to a Fiddler on the Roof themed birthday party. I don't know how many of your listeners live in big cities with big Jewish populations, but in my community, that happens. So it's a Fiddler we on actually, the Roof. I actually do, and it doesn't happen in my community. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe this was a special uh, situation. Maybe in but, Brooklyn, but I, I, yeah. live in, I live in Vaughan, Ontario, which is basically a very, very large Jewish area, but it doesn't happen where we live. Well, I'm sad to hear that because Fiddler birthday parties are fantastic. This one um, included six-year-old girls, mostly girls. I think it was exclusively girls. So they're in sort of like ballet outfits and they're performing the hits from Fiddler on the Roof for adults. That's, that was the birthday party with a kind of dance teacher in front of them. And they didn't perform this song, Anatevka, the name of my film, the song that my film parodies, because of course they didn't. It's a song in the original show, in the original film, that's this like sarcastic shrug of a number where the Jews in, of this small shtetl called Anatevka, the small town, um, they're forced to flee because of anti-Semitism. So of course the little girls did not sing that number. It's not a birthday approved number yeah. for six-year-olds. But I couldn't stop visualizing them singing it. I just couldn't let it go for months. I kept imagining this same crew of six-year-old girls in their little pink outfits, singing this very sad, sarcastic, classic Jewish number. That's where the germ of this started. And with all my projects, I would say, it's when I can't let go of an idea. It's almost like a physical urge that I need to see it realized. So that's why I did this crazy thing of trying to make this film during COVID. Thank God it worked. So, okay, was it always going to be in black and white? No, that was a decision actually um, pretty close to filming. You know, I was having a lot of amazing discussions with my DP, Loretta Prevost, who's incredible. And we were thinking about ways to really communicate. So this film starts in color. And then Hadar Ahuvia, who is the star of my film, she plays the teacher and she choreographed the dance for the children. When she starts the song Anatevka, the world goes black and white. And the inspiration for that, you know, we were, Loretta and I were talking a lot about how do we really make it feel like you've entered a new world when the song begins? You know, this world that's less exciting, less colorful, less happy because it's such a, a dark number. And I was inspired specifically by, believe it or not, you know, Dorothy and the Rainbow, right? If you look back at that film, that very, very classic film, um, The Wizard of Oz, yeah. you might remember it starts in black and white. And then when Dorothy gets to Oz, the world bursts into color. And I realized, oh my God, this is like my Jewish reverse Oz, right? Because <laughs> I'm making fun. My lyrics really poke fun at sort of the modern tribulations of communal Jewish anxiety. So I wanted to do an opposite maneuver. Instead of starting black and white and moving to color, we start in color and move to black and white. And, and I really think it's an important component of the film. Okay, so I'm going to break down break down your film a little bit. Okay, so you hey. got the reaction shots with the parents, you got the teacher, but then you got the the main focus is on the children, kind of in a play setting where you kind of see heads in the in the front rows. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, there's like two main uh, shots, right? Like you have two main master shots. Correct. Did you did you like just do the do the do the scene over and over again with the kids and just like and then figure in editing kind of figured out what the best takes. With this kind of project where you're working with non-professional children, yeah. it functions differently, right? Because they're not accustomed to being on a film set and they're not going to work a 16-hour day. 
there's no chance, nor should they, right? We're talking, by the way, about nine, 10 and 11 year olds. I had yeah. one 12 year old. These are little kids. Um, so the trick was trying to rehearse well enough and fully enough and prepare them right, for what filming was going to be like, that we could get everything we needed from them in two days. We did. It was tight, but but it worked. Um, so it, it was a matter of really, you're exactly right, simplifying those master shots so we could do it four or five times. And then I would have a broad range to choose from in the editing process. That's right. Yeah. So then they just, so then they just did, they just like, you just had them kind of like do the sequence and then they had to hit their, hit their, everybody had their kind of like lines to say they had to hit their lines, I guess, right? That's right. But that was only for the master shots. You know, these kids did all the normal stuff with filmmaking. We would pull separate kids out for medium shots. Yeah, you got you some close-ups, yeah. Yeah. So we also had a, a jib. We had some overshot, like some overhead material that we shot, which we did separately. Obviously, that's a whole different setup. Um, but mostly, we stayed in that master shot to get lots of options. And we shot it um, in 4K so that when I needed to, if I wanted to, and we didn't have a close-up where I wanted one, I could push in a little bit. So Loretta was your your DP, correct? That's right. So did you guys like how did you guys set it up? Like like did you like I'm I'm assuming you just kind of like simplified the staging of the of the film and or did you storyboard anything? I'm assuming you didn't storyboard anything. You just kind of oh like, we storyboarded everything. You did I, oh yeah, this is a very storyboarded movie. <laughs> um, in order to get the shots that I wanted with how little time we had, knowing kids' attention spans, knowing what time they were getting picked up by their parents, we. Not only was the storyboarded, but my incredible, fabulous producer, um, Adriana, she she had time slots for each shot. I mean, this was a very meticulous set. It had to be because otherwise we wouldn't get what we needed. And just to say, because I know you've got a, a, an audience who's so interested in cinema, if anyone out there has seen this beautiful Polish movie called Cold War, it's an incredible feature film about a sort of um, Eastern Bloc Soviet dance troupe. I really took the inspiration for how I was going to shoot this film from the dance sequences from that movie, which really simply go back and forth between showing the stage from a, from one angle and then showing the audience from yeah. another. So that's the basic structure. We, my um, Loretta and I really looked at that movie and thought about how was this achieved because I wanted a similar look and feel. Yeah, well, you got the you got the emotion, you got the concept. And so you don't want to overcomplicate the the staging, I guess, right? If that makes sense. You want to keep it simple. You know, all directors, I'm sure, like me, read a lot of interviews with the directors we admire. And one of the things that I've taken away over the years is, you know, I really believe, yes, there's a place for trick shots. There's a place for incredible creativity when it comes to how the camera moves and where it goes. But I also think strong directing at the end of the day, in a lot of ways, is getting out of their way of your performers yeah. so they can mm -hmm. do what they've been brought there to do. Um, and this was a very uh, firm example of that. This is a this is a performance driven piece for sure. So, so then, so did you worked with her before, Loretta before? No, but um, and she was great. But I will say, you know, not always, but the vast majority of the time, I really like having a female DP. Um, in the past, you know, being a female director, we're still absolutely in the minority in this field. Um, it's a it's a male driven field, That's like nobody changing, does. Yeah. What'd you say? That's changing. It is. It's starting, which is really exciting. But, you know, it's much easier to find male DPs than it is female DPs. Um, unfortunately, I've had some experience in the past. You know, when you're the director on set, you're the boss, right? Everyone's there to help you bring the, your vision to life. And I love that to be as collaborative as possible. But sometimes, unfortunately, when I've had um, worked with male DPs, it can be a struggle to for them to allow you that position, to not be a little undermining sometimes. Not always, but 
sometimes gender comes into the room in a way that can be um, not helpful, frankly, to a female director, with big exceptions, of course. So I love to work with female DPs. Um, you know, it's a much more collaborative process, I've found. And we have that shared experience of being women, which is a nice thing to bring to the set because you, you're coming there with some commonality. Um, and Loretta was absolutely phenomenal. And I chose her in part because she has a strong narrative practice, but she also has a strong documentary practice mm -hmm. that was so important on this piece because, again, we're working with non-professional kids. So if you're only accustomed to sort of like slick narrative sets where everything goes according to plan as much as that's possible in cinema, yeah. this is not going to be a shoot you love. Right. I needed someone who liked kids, has worked with them before and is accustomed to sort of the pace and the problem solving of documentary, which was actually a kind of closer fit to this, if that makes sense. To jump back to what you were saying is that I remember working in the I worked in the industry for like two, three years before yeah. I started doing what I'm doing now. And everybody like this is this is only this is like 2000, 2001. So the DP from the camera department to the lighting gaffer, everybody was generally a, a male. Right? right. So on those crews, like I remember there was like a, a camera loader who was female and it was like, oh, there's a female. It's like it would be like <laughs> right. a, a crew of like 40. So generally speaking, hopefully that's changed with the newer DPs. But I guess when you're older and you're so used to working with men. Right. So yeah. I'm, I'm not giving them a pass. I'm just saying it's like it's a kind of became a man's world for a long time, that kind of department, that kind of area, I guess. Right. Absolutely. You know, Joey Soloway, the famous uh, trans director, um, they talk a lot about this, how, you know, we want to make art with our friends. Yeah. Films start, you know, because film's been driven and led by men for so long, it kind of makes us a weird kind of social sense, even though it's stunk for everyone else, yeah. that you would pick the guys you hang out with to be the guys who are on set. Or your family you. members, because it's also a family business too. Totally. So, you know, it, it makes, there is a logic there, but obviously we need that to change. We need yeah. more women, more, more voices from different racial backgrounds, you know, everything. We yeah. need diversity in this field. So it makes a kind of sense. But, um, but for me, I, I really love working with mostly female crews, not exclusively. I had some wonderful men on this project for sure, but it's, I also, you know, if I'm being totally honest, because these kids had never made a film before, it's really touching and exciting to me as a feminist to know that their first experience with filmmaking was led by three women. Yeah. Um, that's still, unfortunately, the exception and not the rule. So uh, that that was part of what made this such a touching and frankly, lovely experience. So the director, the producer, then the person shooting the camera operator is all women, all female, right? So that's right. Yeah. It resonates for them. It's like I have a, you know. I have, a, I have a daughter and who's like, and she's seeing, she's growing up in a completely different world than her mother and myself. And it's like, I can see it. I see it every day. I'm sure you do too with your kids. Oh yeah. It's yeah. exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they responded to that. I mean, um, you know, one of the rules on all my sets, but this was for this set, it was absolutely a sacrosanct rule is no jerks. You know, you, I don't like having someone on set who's not collaborative, who's unhappy to be there. And also like, you know, God forbid, the last thing I want is for someone to be cranky with one of my kids. These yeah. are children who have signed up to volunteer to do this. They're not being paid and they're volunteers. So it really worked out. You know, I think creating a dynamic on set that matches to some degree the output you want to craft is really important. That's what I've learned over the years. So the the parents, uh, some great some great shots in the in the film. It's like it Thank borderlines you. a little bit cheesy, but it works like for the film. It's kind of has these like oh, that, that's the line. This whole piece walks for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so where did you find uh, the parents? Like, where <laughs> So this was another tricky thing, right? You would think a lot of people said to me, oh, great. You know, once you find a kid, you just cast one of their parents to be in the audience. Yeah. But logistically, you can't do that 
because we needed the kids to leave set so that we only had adults for those shots. Yeah. So yeah. their parents were picking them up. We couldn't cast their parents. Yeah. Um, so those adults that you see are a dynamic combination of close friends of mine and people I've never met before in my life who I needed to fill out sort of my mind's fantasy of what this particular adult crowd looked like. So there are a couple people who are just extras who came on, who I hadn't met before, who did a great job. Everything from that to my personal rabbi, who's in the front row. Uh, so it's um it's a it's a pretty personal crowd with some strangers mixed in. I definitely wanted like a certain number of male people and a certain number of female people and you know different ages represented because in my experience in a Jewish classroom any classroom you're dealing with everything from grandparents to older siblings, right? All yeah. the way through. So I wanted that age range which we were lucky to achieve. Have you shown the rabbi the final product? Absolutely. Always show your rabbi the film that you've made with him in it. It's a good rule of thumb, and I followed it. Um, He loves the movie. He's been extremely supportive, and I think he's very excited that it's going to be showing at Lincoln Center next here in New York. So he's he's a fan. Oh, that's great. Congratulations on that. So what about Thanks. the kids? Have they seen the film yet? Yes. Oh, my gosh. We had, my to date, my favorite <laughs> private screen I've ever had of any project I've ever done. So the kids came to a beautiful art center here in Brooklyn called The Invisible Dog. Um, Lucien Zayan, who runs it, is also in the film. He's one of the parents, so he was very generous to let us use his space. And they didn't know this in advance. They knew they were going to watch the film privately for the first time. But what they didn't know was that I got them each a, an Oscar-type statue with their name engraved on it. So we had an award ceremony for all the kids, and they watched the film for the first time. It was a really touching night. There oh, was wow. one kid in the film who said, I heard he, my my DP Loretta heard him say this and told me about it. She heard him say to someone, this is the best party I've ever been to. I got an Oscar and there are cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm a movie star. I'm on the screen too, right? So that's, exactly. that's, the, third, that's the third thing after the, that's the Oscar. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's amazing. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I, I just love this film. So, and so you, so you're in editing and are you like, so... Two-day shoot, you see, it seems like a pretty positive experience the way you describe it. But Very, yeah. Also stressful beyond belief, all filmmaking yeah, is. Sure. Yeah. So you got your you got your shots. Like, were you right. worried in editing? Like you didn't get enough coverage? Or are you were you happy with the footage that you're your seat that you saw? When it comes to cinema, worried is a strong default state for me. Sure. Um, I worry about all of it. You can ask my husband. This wasn't a month where I slept a ton when we were shooting and then editing this piece. Um, so I'm always worried. But luckily, when I worked with a wonderful editor, Andrew Mendelson, um, Mendelson here in Brooklyn, and you know, a lot of people will know his stuff because he was the head curator for the Sam B TV show for a long time. The head um, editor, excuse me, he's wonderful. But so when I started looking at the footage with Andrew, we realized we really did have what we needed. You know, you always worry. Um, I, there's a quote from Scorsese that I hold in my heart, which is very helpful to me, which is he says, if you don't want to throw up after the first time you see your footage with an editor, something's wrong. I believe that, right? That initial day, you're so nervous. You're so worried. Oh, I should have done it this way. I must be missing this shot. So it's, it's an anxious first day. But once we got to a rough cut pretty quickly, because again, it's only four minutes, this piece, um, I realized we had what we needed and I got really excited for sure. So yeah, because you're like, you're, you're redoing, you're rewriting the film, right? With the footage you have. So you're like, you watch the footage and you're, you go, you go away and you're like, you're thinking, how do I put this film together? And that's the, the rewriting stage begins, I guess, right? That's right. You know, I really think you make a film three times. You yeah. make it the first time when you write it, the second time when you shoot it, and the third time when, when you edit it. And it's never exactly the same film. 
It just can't be. The, the way that this works is that it changes each time. By the way, if it didn't change each time, that would stink. It's what makes this art form so dynamic and alive and challenging is that no one knows, even Mr. Scorsese, exactly what they're going to get. Sure. That, you know, that's part of the the leap of filmmaking that I find so exciting, for sure. And the art of like uh, taking advantage of the happy accidents, not being so stuck on your on your shot list and your storyboards, making sure that you have that the moment for spont spontaneity, I guess, too, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's always the case. And there always are happy accidents and little gems that you find in the editing process that you didn't even realize were there. Because, you know, when you're on set directing, I don't know what your experience is, but it's almost like being in a creative, alive fugue state because you are so focused on the next thing, the next thing, the next shot, the next piece of performance. Um, it isn't until you get into that editing process that you really get to luxuriate and just enjoying what you created. And that's a point where you always find happy accidents. But when you're working with non-professional kids, I actually found this time that the happy accidents and the hidden gems were way more right? Because some kid like totally misses a move in a way that's so charming and believable and what I need. And I didn't even notice on the day, right? We're going to use that shot. Those kinds of moments that happened yeah. a lot. So we said our festival, send you the audience, uh, audience feedback video. What did you think about what their reaction was? Oh my gosh. First of all, thank you. Because I've never had that before. It's an absolute gift to a filmmaker to be able to hear the interior experience of an audience from their own mouths. You know, um, filmmakers, when, when we're lucky enough to get into festivals, if you can go, there is that experience of seeing it with a live audience, which is extremely fulfilling and lovely. But very few people are going to go into a three minute monologue about what they thought and experienced watching your film. Getting that video from you all really gave me a rare opportunity. And I can't tell you how much it meant to me because, you know, I'm a very Jewy Jew making very Jewy work about other Jews. So you never know if- That's a good quote. Thank you so much. Um, you never know if it's going to really connect outside of your tribal community, right? You hope it does. And that's why I always apply to festivals that aren't just Jewish, but mm. it's always a question mark, you know. Luckily, I think Fiddler is a pretty internationally known and sort of cared about show. Um, but from what I could tell, I could be wrong. But from what I could tell, at least, um, none of the people who gave me feedback were Jews. None of them talked about the Jewish content of the piece, but all of them talked about really understanding and having familiarity with that dynamic of children taking on negative messaging or negative sort of um, yeah. content from the confusion of the next generation. That's what this film's really about. It happens to be doing it Jewishly because that's what I'm from and what I'm obsessed with. But it was such a relief and such a gift to see that that could really resonate um, for folks who don't share my background. You know, at its best, that's what film does, right? Yeah. I mean, look at this film that inspired Anna Tevka, Cold War. It's about Poland. It's about the Eastern Bloc. It has nothing to do with my life. And it's not about Jews. And yet, that film means the world to me. You know, when we get to enter someone else's life, someone else's experience through cinema, that's when you really feel like it's working. So um, to know that non-Jews could really connect to the piece, to hear all that positive feedback, I can't tell you what it meant to me. I can't thank you enough. Well, yeah, it, it's this is a great, like I said, I'm, it's, a, it's a great short film. It's like four minutes. It's like you didn't do it. It's like perfectly timed too. Like it, you got all those people in the room. You got this great idea. It's and sometimes you get like, oh, I'm going to make it 20 minutes or I'm going to make it because you, but you made it the perfect length. It's like, it's, yeah, this, this is a no brainer getting into every festival you submit to, whatever you want to. Oh, thanks. Uh, from my perspective, it's like, it's pretty, it's a pretty 
genius film. And like, like you said, it's like, I just talked to somebody who, um, who is Korean and uh, right before today, earlier today, and who made a film and that's what she was, she said the same thing. She was worried that she's talking about her culture and she was worried that people weren't going to get it. But as long as you like are truthful and you, you, there's a universal element to the truth, I guess. Right. And I think that's what you're that's saying. Right. No, I think that's really right. And I would say to any filmmaker or, you know, prospective filmmaker who's listening, like the more you get specific and truthful about your experience, the more kinds of people will connect with it. Yeah. It's not intuitive, but it's true. Yeah. So yeah, it's a great film. So I wish you the best. Uh, I know this is the, how many, how many films have you made? How many short films have you made today? This is my third. Your this third is my third film. film. Yeah. So you're going to make more and I'm sure you want to make a feature, I'm assuming. I have to tell you, um, I love this form. You know, one of the things that's weird about my filmmaking practice is that I don't exclusively show in film festivals. I also show in galleries and museums. My pieces are also in that world. So for that reason, I don't have quite the same impetus to make a feature. Um, I love this form. It's funny because I also love short stories. I wonder if I'm just like a brevity gal. I'm yeah. not sure. Um, but for now, I'm really happy with this form. But someday, who knows? And yeah. I do have a film in the works now that will be a, more toward 20 minutes, which is long for me. And that's going to be a brand new musical that I'm writing with a composer and that piece is called Good Shabbos. So I'm also, I'm already onto the next. I'm, I, I love this yeah. art form. Yeah. But that said, I think that you're, you're, you're too talented not to, to, to make a few features in your lifetime. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. So congratulations. Let's talk again when you make your next film and I uh, wish you this film the best of success for you. I can't thank you enough. Thanks so much for this conversation. Be well. One, two, three, four, five, six.